This is episode 225 of the Land Stewardship Project's Ear to the Ground podcast. This episode is the second in a three-part series titled Farming on Stolen Land. My name is Elizabeth McCarewitz, and I work in the membership program of LSP. These three episodes were developed as a guide to exploring issues of native justice and equity in Minnesota's food system. If you haven't already listened to the first episode in this series, an interview with Norm Murphy, I recommend you do that. I also highly recommend you listen to this American Life's episode, Little War on the Prairie, for a brief but thorough history of how settlers rose to dominance on Dakota land. You can find a link to that podcast through this episode's website page at landstewardshipproject.org. Now pause for a second. Listen. Bede makaska. Say it with me. Bede makaska. Is that so hard? For this episode, I spent some time with Carly Badhart Bull, whose ancestors were among the first to populate Minnesota. Carly didn't grow up in Minnesota, but she and her twin sister, Kate Bean, felt the call to return to their ancestors' homeland. Carly has reconnected with this place, Minnesota Makoche, by learning and teaching the Dakota language, and recently by leading a campaign to return the original Dakota name to an historically significant body of water, Bede Makaska. Hello, uh, my friends and relatives. I guess I'm speaking out into podcast land. Uh, Carly Bad Harpole, Amakiapie. My name is Carly Bad Harpole. Dakotia Tokada Kiamaniwi, Mieye. In Dakota, my name is um, Tokada Kiamaniwi, which means woman who walks toward the future. Um, I'm from Flandreau, South Dakota, um, as a citizen of the Flandreau Santee Sioux tribe. Um, but I'm also from here, Minnesota Makoche, right here in Minneapolis. Um, my people are Dakota, I come from the Badewakantawa uh, Dakota people, or the Spirit Lake dwellers. We're from, originally from, from right here. Wonderful. What sort of work are you involved with these days? Um, well, in my, my day job, I work in philanthropy. Um, I work in, at the Bush Foundation. Um, we're a regional funder um, based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, but we serve Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and the 23 Native nations that share that geography. Um, and I work specifically on our work in Indian country um, across the region. Um, been at the Bush Foundation for about five just over five years now. I think I just um, had my, my work anniversary not too long ago. And prior to working at Bush, uh, I worked as an attorney. Um, I worked for Hennepin County Attorney's Office uh, in their Child Protection Division. Previous to that, I worked for the uh, Indian Child Welfare Law Center. Also um, in child welfare work, did some family law work, some federal Indian law work. And then before all that, I was a Dakota language teacher right over here in South Minneapolis at Anishinaabe Academy. I, I was reading a little bit online, bits and pieces about you and your sister, and um, you you semi-recent transplants to Minneapolis. So you, it sounds like you moved around a lot when you were growing up. Yeah. Um, how did you decide to come back here and settle and start a family? I had, my sister and I had both um, dropped out of high school when we were, I don't even think we were quite yet 16. Um, but we had both gone back to school and um, after um, doing lots of different things, um, 
had decided that we wanted to to do work in our community. You know, we come from community organizer and an educator and finally got to a place where I realized that, you know, if I wanted to serve my community, I needed to get an education. I needed to um, better myself um, to a certain degree. And, and I'd always struggled with the education system, and so it was kind of a, a scary thing. But when I started learning more um, about my own history and about our story in Minnesota, I started realizing that I needed to be here and my sister similarly and so we decided to come to Minnesota and it's interesting because my we didn't live with our with our parents at the time they also lived in the Bay Area that's how we had ended up out there but we all decided to come back at the same time. Um, it started with 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 wanting to come back to study the language and then um, our father worked for an organization called Center for Community Change. Um, they're based in D.C., and they had a San Francisco office. That closed. My mother worked for the Oakland Unified School District. They had cutoffs or layoffs. Um, and so all of a sudden, we were all um, moving back to Minnesota, to our, our Dakota homeland. Um, you know, my father grew up on the reservation in South Dakota, but had never lived here either. Um, um, we did have an older sister who, who, had, moved, who had lived out here, too. So that's, that's what, what brought us back here. I went to Minneapolis Community Technical College for a year and established residency, which is kind of bizarre that a Dakota person has to establish residency. Um, but we did that, followed, the, followed those, those, those rules, um, and then enrolled in the University of Minnesota. Um, that's where we had learned about the Dakota language program. Um, studied Dakota language under um, Chante Maza Neil McKay, who still works there. He's an incredible, um, in incredible Dakota um, instructor, and really, that's that was a turning point for me. Learning my language really helped me have a better understanding of who I am um, and my connection to this place. And so, learning the language, learning the history of this place. Was 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 incredibly um, instrumental, and and so yeah, that's why I ended up teaching Dakota. And I'll need your help with the pronunciation. Bede Makaska. Bede Makaska. Yes. Bede Makaska. You got it. How how did you arrive to that work? Part of the the other the other connection um, to this place um, that my family has is. Uh, as Dakota people, as I mentioned, we come from here. So our creation story, one of our creation stories tells us that we emerged at hum as human beings um, at Barote, um, which is um, the confluence of the rivers where the Minnesota and the Mississippi come together. Um, so we come from the stars and we emerged as, as human beings um, at that place, at that, the island that's now known as Pike Island. Um, and so... We have a long history here, um, and one of our grandfathers, uh, Makapiwi Chashta, um, cloud man, um, in the 1830s, uh, had an agricultural village uh, at Bademakaska. And so we had we had learned about that um, as adults. We didn't we didn't know these things growing up because our our, our history, you know, isn't isn't very often um, shared with anybody, um, including with us. But we learned about um, our, our, our ancestors. We learned about uh, Makapia Wichasha in, in the village of Pademakaska. And so actually when 
when we first moved to here, when we first moved back here, it's one of the first places we went because we wanted to see it. You know, we knew that our family lived there. And, and part of how we knew that was, was through the writing of one of our relatives, uh, Ojiesa, um, also known as uh, Dr. Charles Eastman. Um, mm. He's one of, the, one of the, I think he's the second kind of Western trained doctor in the country. Um, he was also a prolific writer. And he wrote extensively about uh, growing up Dakota in Minnesota and then leaving uh, Minnesota after the Dakota War. Um, but after that, he, he became a doctor. But the, So he was one of our relatives, um, also uh, along that same line. His, his uh, grandfather was Makpiyo Chasha. So we knew about that through that place through his writing, through relatives. You know, my uncle is an incredible researcher and, and has done a lot of uh, research on our family history. And... We felt very connected um, to this place through the stories that we uh, had heard and that we had read and that we had researched. Yet when we came here, at first we didn't feel very connected, uh, especially when you go over there. It's very busy. There's a lot of very large houses around it. And we didn't see our story anywhere. You know, we didn't see the history of our people. We didn't see the language. The fact, you know, for, for folks who just would come over to the lake, they would have no idea that this was a Dakota place. Um, that, you know, historically Dakota people had fished there, had hunted, um, had gathered wild rice. You know, that wasn't an, a known story. And so it's something that we started talking about, that we started learning more about. You know, my sister ended up getting her, her PhD in large part you know, because of her desire to know more about our connection um, to this place, our family's connection to this place. And so I think, you know, that, that storytelling piece, that, that wanting to learn and then share the story was, has, is something that has guided, it's something that's guided me um, through my work. How did I get to the name Restoration? I mean, that's just it. I mean, part of it is just wanting to, the more I learned about our our family's story, um, the more I wanted others to hear it, um, the more I wanted to share it. Because it's, you know, as somebody who worked, I've worked in education, I've worked in child protection, I worked in the courts, and now I work in, in philanthropy supporting um, Native organizations. Um, I talk to a lot of people, I talk to a lot of kids, and one of the things that I hear over and over again is that our people, and especially our kids, are struggling because of feeling this disconnect to the land, um, to one another, feeling a, a cultural disconnect. And, you know, for somebody who didn't graduate from high school, who struggled feeling so disconnected um, from the land, feeling disconnected from home, to come here to learn my story, to start learning my language, and then how that helped me to heal. I want that for our kids, you know, I want that for, for my neighbors. Because I do see this, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's an issue in our, our Native community, but it's a broader issue too. Um, this, this, this issue of um, people being disconnected from one another and being disconnected to the land, and they're very connected. And I think the more you learn about, about the land, the more you learn about the stories um, related to the land, the more people actually, they don't, 
And this is something we learned through the work at Badeh Mankaska is, is people don't even realize how connected to one another they will become. And so that's what, I guess, inspired, that's what inspired me to, to do this. There's a whole other story around the actual what happened, and I can share that. So in 2000, I can't, I, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was sometime in 2015, um, I got a call from, or no, I got an email um, from a, a Minneapolis Park Board member, Scott Freeland, um, and he was, you know, the, at that point in time, the Minneapolis Park Board was putting together a CAC, a Community Advisory Council, um, and the CAC was going to, um, I, I, I think at the time it was going to be a nine-month process. Um, they were going to invite people to uh, appointed park board appointed members to sit down to learn about the, the what was happening around um, Bademakaska Lake Calhoun at the time, um, as well as um, Lake um, Harriet. And so they were going to come together and come up with some sort of a master plan. And that was that's that's the term that that, that was used. And the master plan was. Uh, or the CAC would be tasked with helping to provide guidance to the park board on what a 20-year vision um, at the lakes could look like. You know, what were some things that needed to happen? And at the time, my sister was, my sister Kate was, was living in California. She was just about to move back. And then she got a call from another park board member, Brad Bourne, also looking for a CAC member. I don't know that they each knew that the other was calling one of us, and we have different last names, so who knows if they knew, I don't think they knew we were sisters, but that's okay. Um, so we both agreed to do it, um, and we talked. And, you know, we, we both, I think we were both asked because of our, uh, one, because we were Dakota, and because they were looking for some Native representation and some Dakota representation, and, and folks gave them our names, and that's because we were involved community members. And so we decided to, to sit on this CAC because we cared about the lakes and because we care about this place, and in particular because of our family's connection at Benemakaska and having that vested interest and knowing that there were some stories there that needed to be shared. And I remember at the very beginning us talking about the name because that was a conversation that had been had um, out in the community that the name needed to, needed to be, at that point, a lot of folks had talked about it needing to be changed um, not necessarily to what, but um, there had been some conversations in community because people had started hearing about who John C. Calhoun was. So John C. Calhoun <coughs> was um, a former vice president under Andrew Jackson. He was a um, South Carolina senator who was very much a proponent of slavery. He was quoted as saying that, in fact, that slavery was a positive good and not a necessary evil. And he is also, um, many, um, many folks have, have credited him with, in, in his rhetoric with, with really helping to, 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 to get the Civil War going. And so, so that's something that, that people had started talking about. You know, the, the church shootings in Charleston had happened, um, which was on Calhoun Street. And there's a big, bigger conversation around honoring people like that in this country and what does that say about our, our values. And what a lot of people didn't know, we, you know, we were hearing these conversations and what a lot of people didn't know was the history of John C. Calhoun in the Native community, which was he, which included him, you know, when he was the Secretary of War, he established the Bureau of Indian Affairs under the War Department. 
basically um, saying that, that Native people were the enemy. Um, we were a hindrance to westward expansion, um, and so that's how we ended up, uh, you know, relationships with us ended up in the War Department. So he established the BIA. Um, he also drafted the um, Indian Removal Act and other policies and legislation like that, which um, led to uh, the Trail of Tears. So he was somebody who was not only a huge proponent of slavery, but a huge proponent of um, the extermination of Native people. And we knew that, in large part because of some of my sister's research too. We found out that there was no record of him ever setting foot in Minnesota. In fact, what we found was that he, the reason uh, Bede Makaska had been given the name um, Cal, uh, Lake Calhoun was because surveyors wanted to honor him um, because it was during his tenure in, I believe it was during his tenure in the War Department um, that he approved funding for the establishment of Fort Snelling. Um, and so to honor that, the lake was named after him. And again, these are kinds of stories that, that they're not on plaques or they're not being told at the lake. And yet, when we got the, uh, the invitation to sit on the CAC and to, to help the Minneapolis Park and Rec Board members to envision what was possible um, there, right away for us it was telling these stories and sharing this information. Can you think of specific examples of how your family's story has affected other people, both Native and non-Native? Well, it's really interesting. You know, when we started, when we started with the CAC and we started talking about the, the name and how that was one, when we started talking about the name restoration in general, um, a lot of people thought we were crazy. Um, people thought it was ridiculous. People didn't think it was important. But the more we talked about it and the more we helped people make connections um, to the history and the place and the story, the more it resonated. And, and I'll, well, I'll give one example. So one example would be there was a, a Minneapolis um, Park Board staff member who from the, at the very beginning thought we were wasting people's time and was not helpful at all. The more she heard our story, the more she saw us go out into community and share our story and see the conversations that came up, um, witness the conversations that came up, see how people um, connected, both native and non-native, especially people, we noticed people of color, people from um, immigrant communities who would come up to us and say, I don't feel welcome there, but if, if this were a place that acknowledged that story, that native history, that would be a place where I would feel like I would be welcome to. Um, and so the more she actually saw those conversations happening, we, we, we kind of uh, influenced, we had an influence on her. Um, and, and she changed her mind. And to, at the end, she actually retired, when she retired from the Minneapolis Park Board, she started volunteering her time um, to come to speak um, and provide testimony and talk about um, why this was important and what she had witnessed. And we saw that over and over again. You know, we would go to neighborhood meetings and, you know, walk into a room where we knew that the people there were, were not on board. And that was 
hard and it's really intimidating you know the, to walk into especially where a lot of these a lot of these rooms it was um, wealthy white homeowners who maybe felt like we and we felt too like what do we have in common right but then when we started telling our story again and, and started talking about our connection to this place and our love for this place and how we wanted to share this we wanted to share these stories and 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 there's something something happened where again we started building relationship and making connections with people um, and in many situations we would when, when we would before we would walk out of the room, people would stand up and, and, and say thank you. Like, I see the lake in, in, in a different way now. Um, I feel, you know, when we would walk in, I think a lot of people felt like we were trying to change their perception, that we were trying to take something away from them. And then when we walked out, it was, no, we're actually sharing something. We're, we're providing a perspective that helps you have a, even a deeper relationship with this place. And so we're not taking anything away, we're actually um, giving you something. And, and so we, yeah, we had a lot of um, experiences like that where we saw people's perceptions change just in the span of a conversation. One of the things that, that people who, some of the people who, who were not on board um, would say to us was that the name doesn't matter. And so one, my response would be, well, then why are you holding on to it so hard? Um, it does matter. Names matter. Words we use matter. Because they're a part of our story. They represent um, aspects of, of our story and who we are and our relationships to one another. Um, whether we like to think so or not, or whether we recognize it right away or not, they do. And one of the things that's so beautiful about the Dakota language is that it's a visual language. It's a descriptive language. And so when you look at, or when you hear some of the Dakota place names around Minnesota, you, you see it in a different way. Because you can see where, oh, that's where wild rice used to grow. It doesn't anymore, I wonder why, you know? Or, oh, people, our people used to collect maple syrup over there. There's no maple trees, what happened? So you, you get a different image of this place and, and you start to ask questions. And it's, and it's in a visual way, which is really powerful, I think. And B'nai Makaska, you know, to hear those three words being spoken at that lake is incredibly powerful. It's for our young people, um, for our elders who were punished for speaking their language, you know, to go from, and that's where, you know, at a certain point in time, we didn't know if the name restoration would actually happen. Um, but after about two years of, of working on it, we felt good because you were hearing it on the radio, you were seeing it in the newspaper, you were hearing people say it, and yes, people don't always say it the right way, but that's okay. It's gonna take time, and it's gonna take practice. Um, and I love hear people, hearing people say it and, and being able to, to help people say it. We had my niece, who at the time was three, would, would come to public hearings with us and, and walk folks through um, saying Bede Makaska. Um, because people still sometimes say, it's hard to say, it's really not. It's just you're not used to it, right? Um, you know, what is that, what's that um, street? Um, Zenium. 
for somebody who's not familiar with that word, like it's a street name, it starts with an X, and you just try to read it, it's uncomfortable. It's not familiar. But people live on it. People have been saying that street name for years. It took me a while, but I said it. You know, our ancestors who were, you know, who were punished for speaking our language and, and had to learn English, you know, I mean, and all we're asking for is three words. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, the power that's behind it because of the story that's behind that is something that, uh, you know, that's, that's part of why actually when we were going through the process of the name restoration and we knew that we were at a point where we were, where we were pretty sure we were going to get Bede Makaska, but they wanted to add lake to it, Bede Makaska Lake or Lake Bede Makaska, which would be repetitive, right? Because Bede means lake. We said no. And, and a lot of people thought, oh, we'll just give in. This is the final hurdle, just give in. No, we don't need to, you know, because, you know, our people have, have gone through enough. What's asking the general public to, to just say these three words, you know? It's not asking too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's happening, right? I mean, it's on the signs. It's on Google Maps. It's, people are saying it now. So when we were collecting testimony from people, um, we got a beautiful letter from Louise Erdrich, um, who uh, you know is, is beloved um, in our in our state, rightfully so, as an author, um, Ojibwe author. But she wrote this beautiful letter about how, and she named all of these place names um, in the Twin Cities in Minnesota that have Dakota and Ojibwe origin, and that people don't even realize it, even Minnesota. Um, that don't even realize it, and that at one time they were probably hard to say, but that over time, Bede Makaska, which would roll off your tongue. And that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I mean, it's like meeting a person. If you know their name, that's one thing. But if you know their backstory, if you know where they come from, if you even know what they had for breakfast. But it's through that, that connection, that storytelling that you feel that we feel connected to one another and that we feel connected to where we are. Mm-hmm. And so it only makes sense. It's the same thing with, with, with the land, with the water. Yeah, it's like the name is an invitation to ask more questions Absolutely. in the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to go back to this question of, do you see yourself as an activist? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't... I guess, it, again, it depends on how you use it. Like. I'm fine with it. I'm not much for labels mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's just I'm just I'm just a, an active community member, um, trying to do the right thing, um, and trying to be a good relative, trying mm-hmm. to be a good neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, and if somebody sees that as being an activist, okay, um, it's not necessarily what I would call myself. And I also and, and I don't want that word to be used in a way for for somebody who maybe doesn't know me or doesn't understand me. Um, to feel disconnected from me, to, because we have stories to share and, and to learn from one another. And sometimes I feel like that word can, can be divisive if used in a certain way, and, and it doesn't need to be. I think one of the, one of the things that I, I didn't, maybe didn't talk about yet was, one of the things I'm really proud of um, with this work too was there's a, so there's a lot of work to be done around making these processes more equitable. 
When my sister and I joined the CAC, there were some people of color. And I think that's because there, at that point there, there, was, there was an effort to get some more representation. Again, it was supposed to be a nine-month process. It ended up lasting closer to two years. And it was hard, you know, it, especially for young mothers. They don't provide, you know, they didn't provide childcare. So we brought our kids with us, which irritated some people, but oh well. But for, but for some young parents, it's like, they're just not gonna do it. And, and rightfully so, when you're busy. You know, the majority of the, the CAC members, the majority of, of people I, sometimes in these processes who end up participating are people with privilege, whether it's privilege of money, time, a lot of older retired folks, uh, many of whom provided wonderful contributions, but we can do better with representation. And so there wasn't, you know, there, there just wasn't broad representation. And so one of the things that we did was we asked for an equity subcommittee. And, and we got it, and, and we were it, along with some, some of our other CAC members who were wonderful. And we went out. And so this took more time. And this is all, you know, this is all volunteer. I mean, this is, this is democracy in action. Going out and, you know, spending our evenings at different community centers, in different communities, getting input from people. Uh, what would you like to see? at the lakes? What would make you feel more welcome? And so when we came back to the park board with our equity recommendations at the end of all this, we had a long list of, you know, access to transportation, access to public restrooms, you know, because if you're pregnant and you want to walk around the lake and you don't have one of these big houses over here, you need to use the restroom, you know? Um, you've got little kids and you need a place to sit down and have a picnic, you need park bench or, you know. So we had a long list of, of these recommendations and I'm, I was really proud of that. And also really proud that the number one recommendation, which came from talking to community members who were people who lived outside of, you know, just those big houses around the lake, the number one equity recommendation was to restore the, the Dakota name. Have you considered at all the role of multiracial allyship in this work? Absolutely. What's, uh, what does that look like? It looks like talking to your neighbors. I mean, one of the beautiful things about the, the public hearings, because there were a number of them um, that we had, that the park board had, that the you know, county had um, around this, was that people showed up. Um, and people showed up from various communities. Um, and that allyship... Um, was really important. Um, you know, we went to, you know, early on, I, I live over by um, Martin Luther King Jr. Park, and early on I went and, and sat down with folks from, you know, from, from their board and shared the story and, and talked about the name restoration, and they talked about um, changing the name of the park and what they went through, and we, sh we shared stories. And then when it came time, to go to the park board and to provide testimony, they were there. Um, they showed up and they said, this is important. And they said, this is important to our community. And, and you know, as folks um, in large part from the African-American community, and they stood with us. And so, you know, that was, that was huge. You know, going out and, and, and learning about folks from some of the immigrant communities, you know, we have amazing, neighbors and relatives here that we don't always um, get to share our story with and 
we learned a lot about one another. And the, and the fact that when we asked, when we said, you know, this is something that's important to us, will you show up? Um, and they did. They showed up. Uh, many folks who we had never met before. But because they, they could see um, the importance of this. And it was something, what, what people said to us was, this is the kind of city I want to live in. A city that would, would recognize and celebrate um, Native people and, and share that, acknowledge and, and celebrate that history. How, how is this work ongoing? Or what does the future of this work look like? There's a lot to be done. Um, so this is, I mean, that's a really good question. There's, there's, there's work that's still happening um, at Bede Makaska, um, specifically. Um, there's public art that has gone up that includes... So there's public art that's gone up that, it, that includes stories um, of other families as well. Uh, Dakota stories, other indigenous stories um, around the lake, um, the language. Um, you can see... Um, some Dakota plants and animal names imprinted on the sidewalk. The story of Chayat Ontoué, which was the, the agricultural village that was there, is being told. So that's, that's happening through art, um, which is really cool. There's also more work to be done across uh, the city and across the state. Um, you know, this is one lake, and it's a, uh, an important story. There's a lot of other important stories um, that need to be told and need to be shared. Um, and so there are some amazing other people here um, in the, the Twin Cities who are out there doing it, trying to share share stories, and, and hopefully we'll get more people listening. And um, you've already answered this in a way, but um, so you have a child? One, one child? Yes. Okay. I have a son, Quill Thomas. Quill Thomas. Quill Thomas Bad Heart Bowl. What... Um, what what do you want Minneapolis to look like for him as he enters, as he goes through life? So Quill was born um, in a birth center um, overlooking Bede uh, Makaska. And I chose that birth center in part because they're just wonderful um, willow midwives. Um, but also because of where it's at. Because that's where my family, um, that's where my ancestors lived. Um, and we lived through all throughout um, here, um, that's that's one place um, that I feel connected to um, in that way, and and I wanted him to be born there so that because I want him to feel connected to this place, to this land. I want him to know who he is as a Dakota person, um, and I want I want him to live in a place where other people recognize that too. Where, you know, I don't want him to grow up in a, in a society where his story is not only being told, or I'm sorry, I don't want him to grow up in a place where his story isn't being told. And where it's not only not being told, but it's hidden. Um, because I feel like for Native history in particular, that's, it's a thing. It really is. I mean, there's a, there's a study that recently came out called Reclaiming Native Truth. The W.K. Kellogg Foundation funded it. And it's a national study on the perceptions of Native people um, across the country. There's a lot of amazing information in it. And one of the things that came out of it is that a 
huge percentage of people across this country don't even know that Native people still exist. I don't want my son to grow up in a world where people don't know that our people exist. You know, and so I want him to have a strong sense of identity, a strong sense of who he is as a Dakota, Lakota, and Lakota man, human being. Um, I want him to feel connected to the land, to the water. I want him to um, see himself in this place. And I'll do everything I, I can to, to make that happen. Going up, actually at the park board hearing, where we provided the final testimony before making the recommendation um, to the park board. I'm, I, he's like a couple months old, you know, and I'm pretty much all the pictures on like this or videos <laughs> just swaying back and forth. Um, Cause he was there, he was there through all of it. Um, I wasn't pregnant when it started and I had this beautiful little boy um, who I carried with me on the day that we changed the sign names. Mm. Um, I was holding him as I got to drill in one of the first, um, um, you know, put in one of the first screws for the, for the new signs. So this is part of his story, yeah. which I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your family's story and Absolutely. all of this amazing history that I, I'm so glad to see it finally starting to come out and um, was during our interview she said something about um, in talking about her work for land reparations people are going to feel really uncomfortable the first mm -hmm. time they hear this information mm -hmm. but the more we say it and the more we yes. tell these stories the less shocking it's going to be and, and I've, I, I've feel that's 100% true. And I feel like part of that is because people are so disconnected. Again, I, I said this before, but disconnected from one another and disconnected from the land. And so it is uncomfortable. And we, but stepping into that discomfort is the only way change is gonna happen. You know, be, being willing to sit in those uncomfortable spaces and have those uncomfortable conversations are the only ways that we're gonna connect. Um, and be able to move forward. Otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna remain stagnant, and and I don't want to live in that world. Thank you for that reminder to yeah lean into the discomfort. Mm -hmm. It's something that I'm trying to communicate. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, right. It's really hard. It's really hard, and it, it evolves a lot of um, I don't know. You have to like give up part of your own. Yeah. story and, yeah um, and it's slow mm -hmm. I mean that's the other thing is which is which is really hard I mean you know I recognize that some of the work that we some of what my sister and I are trying to do with with lifting up you know Dakota history Dakota stories Dakota perspectives you know some of the work that we're, that we're trying to do we may not live to see it all play out, you know, and, and that's okay. I mean, one of the things that, that we're taught is to, you know, you look generations ahead, you know, you do your work for the future generations, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, Bede Makaska, that's one, that's, that's one goalpost that we got to, that we can celebrate. Do we think it's gonna do away with institutional racism <laughs> and 
end all the disparities. No, you know, we know better than that. But it's, it's a step, it's a catalyst for other work that's going to then happen, right? That ultimately down the road will lead to this kind of bigger transformation that we wanna see. Um, and that's part of this, you know, that's part of shifting that dominant narrative, you know, as part of truth telling. Um, and it's just what we're trying to do to help make this a better place. Since I recorded this episode in March 2019, a special interest group called Save Lake Calhoun has challenged the DNR's authority to change the lake's name. On April 29, 2019, the Minnesota Court of Appeals ruled that only the state legislature, not the DNR, has authority to change the name of any body of water after 40 years with any given name. The Minneapolis Parks Department has already announced it will be ignoring this decision and maintaining Bidet Makaska signage. The DNR has also committed to challenging the court's decision. To learn more about LSP's stance on this issue, go to our website at landstewardshipproject.org. Thank you. For the third and final episode in this series, we will hear from Dakota scholar Waziyatouin. Waziyatouin is keenly aware of how white people have altered the Dakota homeland and has a vision for achieving justice. Stay tuned.